Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Mustafa Akyol. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute, uh, often focusing on the prospects of liberty in the Muslim world and in Islamic thought. Uh, and today I'm happy to welcome you to our forum titled Secularism Triumphant is the US education system turning into the French system. Now, uh, let me first try to explain what do we mean by that. Uh, over the past few years, there has been a heightened controversy in the United States about public education. Uh, a big part of it has been the inclusion of books and classes in elementary schools about LGBTQ values and lifestyles. The advocates of this policy argue that this is necessary for instilling tolerance uh, among children, which is of course a noble value that we all cherish. However, some families, uh, many of them traditional Christians, Muslims, and other groups, religious groups, argue that their children are being indoctrinated with values that they do not share and with their own tax money. Their own religious values, they argue, are not being tolerated. So in this panel, we wanted to discuss how public education can and should uh, respect all the diverse values in society? How can state secularism protect pluralism and liberty instead of making secular values triumphant over religious ones, or vice versa, of course? And we will begin by, first of all, looking at a country where the connection between religious freedom and public education has long been a controversial topic, which is, of course, France. Then we will get back to the discussions in the United States uh, about public education these days. And we have a great team to discuss this issue. Uh, on my left, we have Rim Sara Alwain. She's a doc doctoral candidate and researcher in comparative law at the Toulouse Capital University in France. She's frequently written on religious freedom, civil liberties, constitutional law, and human rights in France. Uh, next to her, we have Asma Dean who's a visiting assistant professor of law at the Catholic University in America, of America. She's a longtime advocate of religious freedom, and she's the author of two books, When Islam is Not a Religion, and Politics of Vulner Vulnerability. And next to Asma, we have Rob Boston, who is the editor of the magazine Church and State, which is published by the Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He's the author of four books, uh, including taking liberties, why religious freedom doesn't give you the right to tell other people what to do. A good title, I should say. <laughs> um, and the last but not the least, we have my colleague, uh, Neil McCluskey, who is the director of Center for Educational Freedom at the Cato Institute. Uh, he's long studied uh, the connection between public education and liberty here in the United States. And he's the author of the book, the Fractured Schoolhouse, Re-Examining Education for a Free, Equal, and Harmonious Society. Uh, now, I'll begin with Rim Sara. Uh, thank you for you know, coming all the way from France. Uh, I know you were visiting, and we had the chance to have you uh, in DC these days. So Rim Sara, you've long written about this. And as I understand, secularism has different interpretations within France as well and you being critical of a certain interpretation of it, which as I understand uh, in your view, and I would agree with you on that, you know, curtails religious liberty at some level. 
So can you help us get a sense of what is happening in France regarding religious freedom and, and state secularism and a particular interpretation of it? Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, really a pleasure to be part of this fantastic panel to discuss this um, very sensitive but also fascinating issues for many reasons. You have to, ha when we talk about laicity, I, I won't use the term secularism because I think uh, the, the French word is better fit uh, for my country. Uh, we, we often talk about it uh, without really knowing uh, the culture and the history. So I read a lot of things. Uh, and I think uh, the, 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 um, the curse of laicity is how much of a misunderstood concept it is. Uh, first of all, you got to understand uh, when you look at France's history and its uh, history, especially regarding the management of, uh, of religion, religion is France's bête noire. Uh, we, have, we always have had a tumultuous relation uh, with uh, religion, especially regarding our history with uh, the Roman uh, Catholic Church. But in France, uh, we, we have a law, a very important one. So obviously, I'm giving you a summary here because I cannot uh, talk about a hundred of years of history. Uh, la loi de séparation entre les églises et l'État, so the uh, law on separation of church and state. Funny enough, uh, it's the plural that is used in French, so churches, which means religions, plural. And uh, fun fact, uh, the word laicite does not, apply, does not appear in the law. You, you don't see the word appearing, but especially since the revolution, it has been a concept that has deeply influenced this law. Um, you mean the French Revolution? The That's French Revolution, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I <laughs> forgot that I was in the US. <laughs> like, we are not the 18, only one. 1789. 1789, yeah. yeah. Uh, and probably even before if you, but we're yeah. not going there. Uh, and this law, is super liberal. I mean, for at least for France's, for the French context, it's a very simple law. Meaning, the state, uh, religious neutrality, neutrality in general, is imposed upon the state and its civil servants to guarantee, that's the interpretation, equality between its citizens, its people. And in exchange, rights are guaranteed to uh, private individuals, the freedom to believe, the freedom to not believe, the freedom to change religion, etc., etc. And there is a limitation that you probably don't have in the US within the limit of public order. Pretty simple, huh? Of course, we are in France. We are the country of one principle, 10,000 exceptions. Uh, so it implies that also the state does not fund religion. But of course, we have exceptions to that, uh, and I'm not getting into those. Pretty cool. I can stop here, really. Uh, pretty liberal. And you have to understand that in 1905, when this law was adopted, two schools fought each other. One that was pretty much anti-religion, le mouvement combiste, Emile Combe, led by Emile Combe. And one led, among other people, by Aristide Briand which was very liberal. And the idea, again, was not, I'm not saying that 
there were no persecutions or whatever. Again, we are friends, it's in Europe. We have a bad history with dealing with uh, religious uh, freedom and minorities. But really, uh, it's the liberal version of it that won over. Except that, of course, uh, especially after the decolonization, it has been since the 90s, uh, we have been witnessing a change in this liberal interpretation and uh, an evolution towards a very illiberal conception of laicite, uh, which has been, I call it the weaponization of laicite, which has been used to target religious minorities, and I'm gonna be blunt, especially Muslims. And from a very liberal concept, we switch into an illiberal interpretation that actually we call la nouvelle laïcité, new laïcité, coined by François Barouin. Uh, a laïcité where we try to erase religious visibility, visibility from the public space. So, Which was not the case before? It was not the case before. And of course, it started in public school, 1989, with the famous headscarf affairs in public school. Uh, and I repeat, religious neutrality applied upon the state. I'm all for separation of church and state. I'm a hardliner believer in separation of church and state. But what happened is, so famous headscarf affair, l'affaire des foulards de Creil, uh, where um, two students were exp expelled from school from wearing a hijab, so a headscarf, uh, so just a scarf on your head, like you can see the face. The and the debate started. It was dirty, but again, it was the 90s. You see the geopolitical context at that time. You see, and uh, ever since, it has been going on worse. 1989, the Council of State, France's highest uh, administrative Supreme Court, released a non-binding opinion, uh, La Vie du Conseil d'État de 1989, basically stating by its pretty liberal version of, well, a student can wear a religious signs, again, as long as public order is not disturbed. End of story, but no. A debate started, a very dirty one. And again, if you look at the parliamentarian debate, uh, it was really targeting Muslims. That eventually led to the creation of the Stasi Commission, where um, many experts on the topic, even though the composition was extremely controversial, of course, no Muslim women or barely were uh, invited to you know, uh, debate, to contribute. That eventually led to the adoption of the law of 2004, prohibiting conspicuous religious signs in public schools. So from um, primary school to high schools, universities are not included. And of course, the law does not define what a conspicuous sign is. It's not the job of the legislator, right? And it's certainly not the job of the judge. And of course, it applies to all religion, I will grant you that, uh, but we all know that, in fact, uh, it's really a certain uh, category of people. And ever since, we try to extend this neutrality uh, to students first, then there is a whole debate around parents as well, accompanying schools in, uh, accompanying um, students in uh, field trips. So again, targeting Muslim women wearing headscarves. It has not passed so far, even though in 2021, uh, the French Senate passed an amendment, but it was not adopted by the National Assemblies. But still, toxic atmosphere, toxic environment, 
And uh, this transformation of laicity, unfortunately, has nothing to do with its liberal. And the problem, again, and I say that to the American audience, the problem is not laicity itself. It's what we have done with it. Wonderful, uh, Rimsara. Thanks so much. I mean, you covered a lot. And I, I, before going to Asma, I want to ask you a question. And uh, you, you nicely put that there are two interpretations of secularism or laicite in France, laiklik as we call it in Turkish, because Turkey got it from there uh, and made it actually less liberal, uh, decidedly. Uh, you said there's a liberal interpretation of it, which was like state neutrality, but individuals could express their religious views, but then there was a more combative or, or illiberal, uh, maybe coercive you know, aspect of banning religious symbols, and that became. Now, where, wherever coercion is involved, I have the sense that it often tends to be even counterproductive. So whatever goal it wants to achieve, it doesn't generally even get there. I mean, religious coercion, in my view, I mean, I speak about religious coercion all the time in Muslim contexts. I say religious coercion doesn't even make people religious. It makes them resentful of it, and it's not even good for whatever you, you're trying to achieve. Do you see this also in France? I mean, I think the people who have this more combative secularism, who want to ban religious symbols, and hopefully they're, I think they're trying to achieve a more assimilated, integrated society where people are more in love with the values of the republic and all that. But is it counterproductive even? I mean, is this, I mean, are people whose religious symbols are banned in schools, are they falling in love with this or they're actually not feeling welcome and so not feeling very much sympathetic to the whole idea? It's a very inter interesting question when we talk about integration. Um, these are people who are born and raised in France for the most part, so they're French. And there is this narrative every time that, you know, especially talking about Muslims, they don't belong, and which make them the center of the attention every time. So when, you know, uh, you see the debate, Muslim, you switch on TV, Muslim, Muslim, Muslim. We have a thousand problems, right? But I mean, we have 99 problems, but apparently Muslims are like, <laughs> I mean, it's completely crazy, and of course there is resentment, but it's very interesting that, you know, people, regardless of their religion or their beliefs or their political beliefs or philosophical beliefs, just want to live peacefully at home, you know? And uh, the more you are going to prohibit something, of course, the more you will have a response from the people you're targeting. And, and don't get me wrong, actually, when you actually talk to people, all they want is really laicity to be applied. But there is this narrative that, and of course, on top of that, you add elements of security, national security. And uh, we connect religious freedom now to national security. Laicity became a tool to, for national security, really. And the more people ask for freedom, the more is restricted. You know what, uh, I have always said that it's in time of despair. It's in time of, you know, um, we have faced a lot in France regarding, you know, radicalization, extremism, etc. It is at that time that we need more freedom. If anything, if you want to fight radicalization, etc., you need more freedom. And I would even go further and say that even what I'm saying, we talk about religious freedom always connected to national security or extremism. This is wrong. And what kind of country do we want to be? 
Muslims belong to France. They have been in France for more time than I can count, right? They have been, in, they have been contributed to the fabric of this country for decades, for centuries. They belong to France, they belong to Europe. So at some point, just abide by what we preach, liberté, égalité, fraternité. That's our motto, okay? And these are not like just fun stuff for Emily in Paris, right? Uh, these are constitutional uh, principles, liberty, equality, and more recently, fraternity. Um, of course, you, you, I mean, the government authorities across the political spectrum, by the way, it's the right wing, but it's also a fringe of the left and the center. Uh, what do you want? And I don't, you know, let's abide by what we preach. If you want laicite to be applied, just apply it the way it has to be. And we need to stop talking about we need to assimilate and integrate. What does that mean? Integrate to what? People are French. Until when you're not considered as someone who needs to be, quote, integrated? Do we ask the far right people if they're integrated and respect the values of France? Mm -hmm. So uh, the double standard is quite mind blowing to me. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, freedom is often the solution and, and, and not the problem, I mean, including on issues of integration. Uh, now, let's uh, go to Asma. Asma, thanks for joining us again. Uh, and uh, you have written a lot about religious freedom uh, in the United States, in Muslim uh, countries and Muslim thought as well. And you've been uh, in the current debates about you know, public schools in Montgomery County, whether parents should be able to opt out their kids from certain, certain classes that they don't find you know, compatible with their values. So, and it's different from France. I mean, in the US, nobody's banning religious symbols. Let's say, thank God, you know, if you're religious or you know, thank the Constitution or Second Amendment. But do you see a parallelism in the United States in terms of there is a assertive progressivism or secularism that is sometimes overshadowing religious freedom or at least attempting to do so? And is the current debate somehow connected to that? Yes, well, thank you, uh, Mustafa, and thank you to the Cato Institute for having me here today, and thank you all for coming out. Um, and, you know, I would say absolutely. <laughs> I think that, you know, I want to lay out kind of what's happening in Montgomery County for those of you who don't know. Um, you know, Montgomery County is not too far from here. We started with France, and now we're essentially coming right here, just minutes from where we're sitting. Uh, I know a few of us actually live in Montgomery County, and so it's very um, personal to us as well. Um, and so let me tell you a little bit about what's happening. So last year, the Mo Maryland's Montgomery County Public Schools, which I'll be referring to as MCPS, and it's one of the largest school districts in the country, and the school district instituted an LGBTQ curriculum. And not only did it institute this curriculum, but it also prohibited parental opt-outs. I mean, actually initially allowed it, and then very quickly said, never mind, no one's allowed to opt out their children from this, and furthermore, we're not gonna give any notification to parents on the days that these books and the, the larger curriculum is being taught uh, in case a parent who dissents wants to keep their child at home. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. So what are some of these books? And again, the, the curriculum that I'm talking about is specific to elementary schools. and starts in pre-K all the way up through fifth grade. And so the book for, that's assigned for pre-K, which again is three-year-olds, teaches them vocabulary such as cisgender and pansexual. And it's a, it's a book called Pride Puppy, where there's like a pride parade, and the, st the students, or these young children, are asked to match words with pictures, and the words include things like drag queen, drag king, leather, underwear. 
The fourth grade curriculum uses the book Love Violet, which instructs teachers to explore their students' romantic attractions. So the book is about the same-sex attraction between two very young girls on a playground. And in the context of sort of talking about this particular romance, the teacher is to invite students to, quote, acknowledge how uncomfortable we might be when we feel our heart beating thumpity-thump and how hard it can be to talk about our feelings with someone that we don't just like, but we like-like. So keep in mind, this is the teacher talking to fourth grade students about romantic you know, and interest that, I mean, I'm not sure, I, I have three kids, um, a current sixth grader who not too long ago was a fourth grader. I'm not sure the fourth graders actually experience romantic attractions, but in any case, the, the teacher is not only exploring it, um, not only sort of like insisting that it does happen, but also exploring it with, with her students. The book Intersection Allies advocates that to be quote-unquote safe, bathrooms should be gender neutral. And it also defines terms such as sex, gender, transgender, and non-binary, and asks um, the students, the elementary age students, to tell them what, pronoun, what pronouns fit you best. Fifth graders are to read a book about a young girl who believes that she's transgender and is encouraged on this path by parents who don't ask any questions and instead embrace a child-knows-best approach. So the book is called Born Ready, and it's based on the true story of a girl named Penelope who explains to her mother that I don't feel like a boy, I am a boy. The mother agrees to tell their family, quote, what we know, you are a boy. And the father also agrees that Penelope is a boy as long as Penelope says that, she is a, that, she, that he is a boy. In addition to the sort of child knows best approach, it's also complemented again by the, the sort of school knows best approach. So when Penelope tells the principal, I think like a boy, I feel like a boy, I'm sure I'm a boy, the teacher in the book says, today you're my teacher. The resource guide for this book encourages the Montgomery County teacher to uh, sort of encourage stu students to notice how happy Penelope is when his mom commits to sharing with their loved one that he is a boy and to question why gender is such a big deal in the United States. So in essence then, the curriculum prioritizes the teacher's role in these very intimate aspects of their young children's lives and deprioritizes parents. And if parents are not fully affirming of the child self-diagnosis, the curriculum directly makes the parents the object of opposition. Consider also some of the other things that the resource guides, and it's not just the books, you have to really understand the resource guides and what they're instructing the teacher to do. So if a student questions the story's narrative with comments like, he can't be a boy if he was born a girl, or what body parts do they have? The school board's guidance encourages teachers to respond like this. When we are born, people make a guess about our gender and label us either a boy or a girl based on our body parts. Sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. Our body parts do not decide our gender. Our gender comes from inside. We might feel different than what people tell us we are. We know ourselves best. More broadly, and speaking to the question that Mustafa posed for me in the, the sort of topic of today's event, of this idea of enforced secularism in public schools, in adopting the curriculum, the school boards said that it is seeking to, quote, disrupt heteronormativity and either-or thinking on gender and sexuality beginning at age four. Employees responsible for selecting the books were told to look through an LGBTQ plus lens and ask whether stereotypes, cisnormativity, and power hierarchies are reinforced or disrupted. The board requires teachers to emphasize ideological viewpoints. For example, the quote, Harry Styles wears dresses. 
that not everyone is a boy or a girl, and that some people identify with both, sometimes one more than the other, and sometimes neither. So students shouldn't guess, but instead solicit pronouns. And it instructs the teachers to frame disagreement with these ideas as hurtful, and to disrupt, again, the either-or thinking. And the board acknowledges that any child may come away from the instruction with a new perspective that, quote, is not easily contravened by their parents. Now, as you can imagine, the parents in Montgomery County are very concerned about this. And again, their concern is on this question, not of the actual curriculum, but the fact that they're not notified about it when it's being taught, and they don't have the option of opting out their students from participating, or their children from, from participating. And we can imagine why they're concerned about this, right? Not only does it go directly against many traditional religious views about gender and sexuality, but it's also defining the appropriate role of parents in their children's lives. The no questions asked approach to children who express interest in transitioning is deeply troubling to many parents, including religious parents. This sort of excessive focus on romance and the centering of the school teacher as the person of authority directing students' perspectives on these issues. So there's a lawsuit. And the lawsuit would fi was filed on May 24th, just of 2023. And the accommodation is, again, we're not trying to ban any books. We're not trying to remove the curriculum from the school. All we're asking is that you give us the opt-out option. Just give us notice. Give us an opt-out. That's all the religious parents are asking for. And there's multiple claims in the, law, in, in the lawsuit. There's a free speech claim, there's a substantive due process claim, but today I just wanna focus on the free exercise claims, or the religious liberty claims. And the first claim is that this interferes with the parental right to direct the religious upbringing of their children. It's, an, it's, an, it's a right that we have long recognized in this country that the parents ultimately are the main figures who get to decide how their, how their uh, children are going to sort of understand their religion, their religious beliefs about a wide variety of issues including gender and sexuality. And there's a long-standing sort of understanding of that because there, in the family life and, uh, and human sexuality instruction, there is an opt-out, there's always been an opt-out. There's a recognition that there's something about this area of education that parents should be more directly in control of. In this country, so the free exercise is governed by, you know, in the absence of particular statutes, um, is governed by what's called the Smith Standard. It's a standard that was laid out in a, in a case uh, called Employment Division v. Smith, which essentially says that unless you can show that a law is not generally applicable, that is, it doesn't apply to everyone the same way, or unless you can show that there was some sort of hostility at play when this law was enacted, then you're gonna get mere rational basis review. That is, you're basically the religious believer is not going to succeed in his claim. But however, if you can show that there is, it's not generally, generally applicable and that there was hostility, then you get this heightened standard, which is called strict scrutiny. And under strict scrutiny, typically a religious claimant will win. So in this lawsuit, the, 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 uh, the parents argue that the, this policy is neither generally applicable nor is it neutral. They explain, for example, that there are a number of exceptions. There's an exception to the human sexuality uh, component. There was even initially an opt-out provision provided with, with regard to this curriculum. And the fact that there's exceptions negates this idea that it's generally applicable. Not only that, but it was also not neutral. Not only in the course of sort of developing this curriculum, not only explicitly in the curriculum, what it says that when students express dissent, they're to be, to be told that they're being hateful or hurtful, and, but also in the sort of the protests that have come you know, in the aftermath of this you know, institution of this curriculum and the rescission of that opt-out, 
There's been a number of sort of testimonies in front of the Board of Education, and time and again, the board has labeled religious students and parents as hateful, as engaging in a dehumanizing form of erasure. When a religious student spoke about her, spoke up about her concerns, she was referred to as brainwashed. So this sort of like, this language shows time and again that there's a hostility to religion, and so it's not neutral. And similarly, there are no notice, no disclaimers, particularly for this, even though the school does it for all kinds of other things, such as if you have a guest speaker. And so altogether, this, the, the, the lawsuit argues that strict scrutiny is the relevant legal standard here. And under strict scrutiny, again, typically a religious claimant wins. And on Ju June 12th, the law firm that brought this lawsuit filed a motion for a preliminary injunction. A preliminary injunction is something like a temporary restraining order. Uh, while the trial is going on, while we sort of engage in this long process of coming to a conclusion of what, you know, whether or not this violates uh, the parents' religious rights, can we just, in the meantime, just restore the opt-out so they cannot be sort of injured in this way? And on August 24, the district court denied, ruled against the parents, denied the motion for preliminary injunction, and said that didn't even get to the question of whether or not it was, the law was generally applicable or not neutral, but, the, but said that there is actually no burden, no burden placed by this policy on religious parents. Quote, mere exposure in public school to ideas that contradict religious beliefs do not, does not burden the religious exercise of students or parents. The parents and their children are not being directly or indirectly coerced into activity that, that violates their religious beliefs. This is language from the, the court's opinion. And the compulsion must mean something beyond simply reading and discussing assigned materials. And not only that, but the court said that the parents are not prevented from discussing and contextualizing any contrary views at home. So there's nothing problematic about this curriculum because when the student comes home, like nobody, the school board's not standing there trying to stop you from talking to your own children. So therefore, the, the, the uh, court concludes there's actually no, nothing really problematic. There's no burden on religious exercise here. It's now like in France where they say, you're not supposed to wear the headscarf in school, but you can go wear it at home, a bit like. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't really can, matter what happens in the context. You can have your religious values out there, but not in the space. Yeah, except the difference, of course, as I sort of laid out in, um, a little while ago, is that there's a very sort of affirmative attempt here to change the way that these students are thinking about gender and sexuality. Right, so even in the context of all these very explicit concessions that are like noted in the documentation, both the board insists that there's nothing really here that we're trying to do that's burdening religious exercise, and even more troublingly, the court actually accepted it. And so I just want to, you know, in conclusion, I just I do want to note that there was, a, you know, that there was a brief that was filed in addition to the main sort of like parties filing briefs. There was an advocates brief filed by a group of renowned religious liberty scholars from across the country. And it, the, the scholars noted that the district court was essentially basing her ruling on precedents that are inapplicable and outdated, and somehow strangely ignores all of these recent uh, rulings by the US Supreme Court, which, which have been very protective of religious exercise. And they explained that under our law, under our constitution, it's not just outright prohibitions, but also indirect coercion or penalties also constitute burdens on people's religious exercise. Quote, subtle and indirect pressure can be as real as any overt compulsion. And this is particularly the case in a public school context because you're required to either go to a public school or find a, oft, an often costly alternative. And in this sort of inherently coercive environment of the public schools where you have authority figures and sort of this captive audience as, as children are called, you know, you're also being told right in front of your peers that if you express dissent, then your beliefs are hurtful and negative. 
And also, in the district court sort of focuses on this idea, again, that if you can instruct your, your student, your children at home, then there's no actual burden. I mean, the scholars are just find this like completely laughable. Um, and, you know, they, they note that this sort of elides the nature of the plaintiff's claims, which are that, that the government's forced indoctrination burdens their religious exercise by contradicting their religious upbringing of their children. And there's this one line in particular that I really loved from the brief and that I'll end with, where the scholars say that the defendant's suggestion that the use of books involves no instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity per se is as convincing as suggesting that reading The Boy Who Cried Wolf involves no lesson on lying per se. So to say that these are just simply books we're reading but we're not actually indoctrinating you about certain values and certain ideas is, is I don't know if it's willful or, um, I mean, certainly the scholars and many people think that it's just sort of like a way of covering up what is actually happening here, which is sort of a direct challenge to the religious uh, beliefs that these children are being taught at home. Thank you. Thank you very much, Asma. Uh, very important details that you shared. Before going to Rob, let me just briefly ask the same question that I actually asked I ask Rim Sarah. In this case, which you define as coercion in, in public schools, uh, there is a noble goal, and the goal is defined as you know instilling tolerance in children about individual towards individuals with uh, LG, who are individuals who have LGBTQ plus identities. Now that's a noble goal, but as I asked her, is it actually even counterproductive to that goal to have a compulsory education that the parents don't want, but that is brought on to them by the public education school. It's not even actually good for its state. Is it possible? Do you see that sort of dynamic? I mean, I should note that the briefing in this case and the arguments have always emphasized that there's a recognition of the need and sort of the positive value of generating tolerance, right? But also pointed out that so much of the, of the curriculum just goes past this idea of tolerance. And it raises this question also like tolerance for whom, right? And so if you're saying that anybody expresses dissent as being hurtful or negative or engaged, engaging in a quote dehumanizing form of erasure, what does it say in terms of tolerance to religious views? And so there's, they're inherent in the curriculum and also in the responses of not just the government officials, but also what the teacher is supposed to say. There's like this sort of conflict that's being set up between religious students or anyone else who expresses dissent and uh, the sort of the LGBTQ individuals. And by creating this conflict, you're actually exacerbating polarization, which is counterproductive, ultimately, to this idea of tolerance. Thank you so much. Now, let's go to Rob. Rob, thanks for joining us. And uh, you've written on this uh, a lot. And from a slightly different angle, I can say, if I'm right, I mean, you actually some wrote about how the claims to religious freedom can sometimes be illiberal and you know, curtailing the liberties of others. So with that perspective and your expertise in this, how do you look at these issues, in particular the United States, but feel free to comment on the French case, of course. Yes, thank you very much. Um, actually, I would like to step back a little bit and give some big picture thoughts about secularism, especially in, in the public school context. Uh, there is a myth, I think, out there that those of us who advocate for separation of church and state want a rigid secularism in public schools you know, if a kid sneezes, a friend can't say, God bless you, or there'll be a federal lawsuit, this sort of thing. Uh, that is not accurate. Um, our belief has always been that religion in public schools must be voluntarily chosen, not imposed. There should be no coercion. Now, I'm no, I'm no expert on French secularism, believe me. I have participated in some international conferences in France 
where individuals have been present, where we've discussed and debated secularism as it applies in some different countries. Uh, but I do know that French secularism, just as US secularism or secularism in any other country, is forged by you the unique ex historical experiences of that nation. Now, in the United States, we had so much turmoil and stress over religion during our founding period that there was a decision that the government would not be involved in matters of religion to the extent that it, it could stay out, it would. And in the public school system, this has, uh, uh, I think, played out in a number of different ways. I think we've generally got the balance right. But what I want to do is talk a little bit about what's okay and what's not. I will discuss Montgomery County in, in a little bit, but set the stage a little bit with just some, some thoughts about what actually can happen in, with religion in public schools because it's a good bit broader than a lot of Americans think. For example, students have the right to pray voluntarily in school in a private and non-disruptive fashion. Now, you know, you can't stand up and start screaming a prayer in the middle of math class, but if you want to say a prayer, if a child wants to say a prayer in a public school at the beginning of the day or before they have their lunch or before they take a test or whatever, that right is, is perfectly protected. Students have the right to read religious or non-religious texts during the school day when they have free time. Now again, if you're in class and you're supposed to be discussing The Great Gatsby, you can't just pull out your Bible and start reading it. But if you have a study period or some other free time, you certainly can do that. Um, there is a group that every year, they sponsor an event called Bring Your Bible to School Day, and they act like this is some subversive or illegal activity. <laughs> it's completely protected. Uh, just as a student could bring a Bible to school, they could bring a Koran or a Hindu text or a book by Richard Dawkins. Uh, so that's permitted. Students can incorporate religious themes into their schoolwork when it's relevant. And of course, we know that public school students can wear religious garb in the classroom. This happens all over the country. Students can talk to their friends about religion. They can invite them to religious services. Now, there are some limits to this. It's kind of like asking a person out on a date. If you've been turned down and you keep asking, it can be construed as harassment. But to talk about it with your friends and discuss what you believe and to want to share your faith, uh, that's permissible in a public school context. Students have the right at the secondary school level to form private student-run religious clubs. There's actual, actually a federal law that protects this called the Equal Access Act. So at the end of the day, students may have a Christian club or a Buddhist club or a Jewish club or a Muslim club or an atheist club or a gay-straight alliance. The school doesn't run these clubs. They're run by students. Nobody has to be there. It's purely up to the student's decision. So this is another way that religious activity can come into the public school. And of course, the objective study about religion is absolutely essential in public education. To discuss religion's role on history, art, literature, we're not educating our young people if we don't have this discussion. I am reminded of the words of Justice Tom Clark in the 1963 Abington case, which was one of the school prayer cases, who said, it might well be said that one's education is not complete without a study of comparative religion or the history of religion and its relationship to the advancement of civilization. It may certainly be said that the Bible was worthy of study for its literary and historic qualities. Nothing we have said here indicates that such study of the Bible or religion, when presented objectively as part of a secular program of education, may not be affected consistently with the First Amendment. 
So a Bible as literature course, a comparative religion course, all this sort of stuff is permitted in public schools. Maybe it's better that it be done in the upper grades when students are a little more sophisticated, but certainly it can happen and it should happen. That's a little bit about what's okay. What's not okay? What's not okay is for schools to sponsor prayer, Bible reading, and religious worship, which they were doing in some parts of the country prior to the Supreme Court's first ruling in the Engel case in 1962. Engel, which was out of New York State, challenged a prayer that had been written by the Board of Regents, a government body. And because this government body claimed that this was a prayer that was acceptable to everybody. Well, we know that there's no such thing. And students were being compelled or pressured to say this, and the Supreme Court struck it down. And interestingly, while there were non-religious people involved in this case, there were plenty of religious people who also felt that this government-composed, coercive, and compulsive prayer was inappropriate, and they opposed it. We can have no type of pressure or coercion or punishment based on a student's refusal to take part in religious activity. And remember, this type of pressure can be subtle. There was a case that the Supreme Court took up recently involving a football coach in Washington State. Some of you may know about this case. My organization defended the school district. The coach was praying at the 50-yard line with students after the game. Some students did report feeling a subtle pressure to take part. You want to play in the game, you want to be on the coach's good side. Now, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of that coach, and as a result, the school district came up with a system where he could pray at the 50-yard line when the game was over in a private manner. His response to that was to resign. He didn't really want to pray privately. He wanted to pray in a way that involved other people, including impressionable youngsters. And that's not really his job as a public school official or employee. Now, Montgomery County and the question of opt-outs. This is something that has been in the media a lot lately, and I live in Montgomery County. My wife and I put two children through that school system. They're grown adults now, so they're not there anymore. But certainly, we have been involved with this public education system rather intimately for a number of years. I would argue that not as what, what, is not, what is being taught is not tolerance. It is reality. It is the world as it exists today. This is a world where a growing number of our population identifies with the LGBTQ community. According to a recent survey, 20% of Gen Z say they are LGBTQ. They will be your children's friends. They will be your children's coworkers. They will be your children's neighbors. In some cases, they will be your children. Nobody wants to be excluded. People want to be represented. People want to know that they are acknowledged, that their existence is valued. Now, the books and the, and the stories in this case were referred to by the federal judge as, quote, a small subset of the curriculum. So it wasn't a huge number of books we're talking about, but they were in the curriculum. They could be used. The problem with opt-outs is that and in the 36 years I have worked at Americans United, I have seen this argued over and over again. People demand them anytime that they say they're offended. We've had people say, I don't want my children to learn anything about evolution because my religion rejects that. People have argued that they don't want their children exposed to any stories that show women in authority because in their religion, women should be submissive. People have argued that their children should not even be exposed to factual information about other religions. 
There have been cases in Maryland and in New Jersey recently where parents challenged objective instruction about Islam in the curriculum. Now, we simply can't function in public education if all of these opt-outs are honored. It can't happen. I understand the frustration that some of the parents feel, but I would urge them to remember that one of the values of public education in the United States, and I know where I am today. I know this is the Cato Institute. I know you're not exactly fans of public education, but the fact is it educates 90% of our children and one of its strongest values is diversity, that it recognizes all of those children, that it encompasses all of those voices. And we know we've made mistakes in the past. We know we've excluded during the Jim Crow era. We don't want to make those mistakes again. We want to make sure that all the voices are heard, that everybody's recognized, whether they are non-binary, gay, lesbian, or uncertain. And the way you do that is to give folks representation in the material and the literature that they are exposed to every day. The public schools do have a role to play in making sure that everybody feels welcome and that everybody is embraced. The first duty I would submit to you of public education. I will conclude by saying that I am here today in part to say that secularism is a positive value and a good thing. And it pains me that I have to say that, but it is often treated in the United States as a dirty word. It is not. Let me be clear. Secularism is not hostility toward religion. Secularism is neutrality toward religion. And there is a great difference between those two concepts. Now, are we always honoring secularism in the United States? Are we always honoring that spirit of neutrality? No, we are not. And you don't have to reach any further than the coins rattling around in your pocket to see where we have not respected that secularism. But we strive for it. It is, I believe, the platform upon which religious liberty rests. A state that is secular simply says, when it comes to religion, we as a government don't have an opinion. You as a citizen, it can be a Christian, a Jew, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Hindu, an atheist, a Wiccan, a pagan, a pantheist. Or you can be like the growing number of Americans in this country today who are saying, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, and are stepping back from organized religion. Secularism gives us the right to make all of those choices. It is a positive force in American life. It should be upheld and never attacked. Thank you very much. I mean, we at the Cato Institute also believe in freedom of speech and diversity of opinion. That's why that's wonderful to hear from you. And thank you so much. I mean, you brought a certainly different perspective and very helpful one to this discussion. Now, um, I want to come to Neil, uh, my friend and colleague who's been studying education in the United States and who's been trying to actually find a way to, you know, reconcile these irreconcilable sometimes uh, convictions about what's the right thing to teach to kids and how to, how to manage the classes. So uh, what do you think, Neil? You know, what is the way, way where, what's the way to go? Obviously some families are saying our religious freedoms are being violated. Others, people, other people are saying, no, not at all. I mean, this is just objective truth or this is the neutrality of the public space that should exist. Otherwise we cannot function. Is there a way to somehow make everybody a little bit happier? 
Yes, there is, in <laughs> fact, and I will tell you what it is. I will say I had a whole different set of things to say. I was going to kind of run through some history so that people kind of understood how we got where we are. But I'm going to just try and distill that into the basics of what I think are intention in education systems. I'm going to talk a little bit about a spectrum of thought. Um, and then we'll go on to other people. But I hope that what I'm about to say isn't going to be totally rambling because I had all this stuff written down. I said, the heck with that. Let's get, if I can, right at the core of this. And what I think is at the core of education debates that we see in France historically, that we've seen in the United States, that we see among just philosophers of education, is a fundamental tension between diversity and uniformity. A lot of the discussion about education, it can be public schooling, so government schools. It can be the idea of what does my school of any type want to teach, is how much do we teach people to be the same, to fit into a particular community. So that is the uniformity. It's especially informed a lot of public schooling, because a lot of what's animated the creation of public schooling was a concern that you wouldn't have people with shared values. And it could be right down to very important things, like shared value of, do I believe in liberty? Do I believe in democracy? Do I accept, do I tolerate people who are different than I am in this society? Or should I be able to attack them? That's some of the basics about uniformity. How much do we need to fit people into a society? And then the other side of that tension is diversity. And the more we have a sort of liberty-oriented society, the more important that, that individuality, that diversity is. How do we make people so that they can all get along in this community that we're all in without their having to sacrifice the things that are important to them, that make them different? The beliefs and the values that they may have that are different from the people who live next to them, live the next town over, and depending on the size of what we're talking about in the United States, it could be the entirely different coast. How do we balance uniformity and cohesion with diversity. And this comes to some very actually basic questions about what do we teach and teaching philosophy. Some people believe that the purpose of education is to instill in the next generation, the newest generation, an understanding and an exposure to what is good, what we believe is beautiful, what we believe is most important for them to know. On the theory that adults, people who have thought about this, know better than the kids do what is important, that human beings over centuries have, have discovered things that are good, that are better than other things. And so one theory is that's the role of education, is to deliver to the youngest generation those things that are true, as we define true. And of course, that's where it gets difficult. Other people think, yes, that could be part of it, or there's a whole other philosophy that the role of education is to enable a student to decide for themselves what is good, to learn about everything and choose among those things and decide, I believe this is most important, I believe this isn't. I will be able to weigh all sorts of different things against each other. Of course, there's a limit to that, and part of the limit is one, a child doesn't know often what all those different things are. And in the end, 
there's a finite amount of time, especially in a school. Decisions have to be made about, well, what are all the different opinions and views and, and evidence that people should be exposed to, that kids should be exposed to, so that they can learn what's best. And once you get into the details of that, what are the specific things that we need to tell them, that's when we get into very real, very constant, very often painful debates like we see in France, like we see in Montgomery County, and as we've seen sort of in every education system. In the United States, for most of the history of American education, when it came to religion, it was a big question about, well, what is a proper American? And the general understanding was a proper American is Protestant. It wasn't necessarily a particular type of Protestant, but that was kind of the archetype of a proper American. That is what was often taught in the public schools. And then a big group came that wasn't consistent with that. Those were Catholics. And so you can go to the 1840s and the Philadelphia Bible riots, actual warfare over what is taught in the schools. What's the role of the Bible? Whose Bible? And you get that fundamental tension of, well, we want people to be cohesive, but that is very difficult to do when we have diversity. That, there's a whole lot of other history we talk about that uh, in this regard. But these sorts of battles were in all sorts of school systems all across the, the world, not just here. Um, so it's not until, as you mentioned, the 1960s where we say, well, in this country, you can't have any more prayers or compulsory Bible reading, at least for devotional purposes in public schools. But that leads to a whole new problem. And where I disagree a little, Rob, is we then move to this idea that secular is the ideal. But I think secularism is actually just part of a spectrum of worldviews. How do you view the right way to understand life? Why are we here? How do you understand the right way to raise children? What are your moral values? And secularism, I think, is just a part of that. Um, and so what we, I think, have done is we have elevated the secular above the religious. We've said, no, the right thing, and for totally understandable reasons, by the way, because it's not viable to have one particular religion imposed by government, but it's also not really viable and it's not consistent with liberty to say the government chooses secularism. We require people to pay for secular schools where the message is secularism is better or at least more mainstream than religion. If you want religion, do that on your own time. That is where we've run into the problem. And this is where I think that sort of opt-outs are kind of part of this. I actually think that within public schooling, that if we enable people to opt their kids out of things that they say are in violation of their religious beliefs, that is a move in the right direction. But you're also right that if everybody could opt out of everything that they disagree with, you couldn't make any progress often in a public school. Um, and I think it was New Hampshire or somewhere where they actually talked about doing this and, and it kind of fell apart because I think as a practical matter, people realize you can't teach if you have to keep coming up with alternate lessons for everything for everybody. But that is why I think the solution as sort of practical matter but consistent with liberty 
is that we have a fundamental reimagining of how we provide education. And it's actually not actually reimagining. We've done this in many places, in some places for a very long time, where the money to educate, so for public education, is attached essentially to a student, and parents can take their child to schools that teach consistent with their values. In other words, true neutrality on the part of government. Government is not saying any particular religion is more important or more consistent with what that country stands for, but they are also not saying non-religion is more consistent with what the country is about. People have a choice. Um, we have an, actually an example of how this is done in a way that's not in the United States, it's not France, it's in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, if you can get a certain number of families together to say, I want, we want a school that's not provided. It could be a Catholic school, it could be a Montessori school, so it could be how it teaches, it could be its, its religion, it could be a worldview, then funding would be provided for that school that people could choose. So this is not just a, an American idea that money would essentially follow kids. This is how it's done in the Netherlands, and it was done specifically to end a lot of religious conflict in that country between Catholics, Protestants, and secularists, all vying for control of the government schools, the public schools. And even in France, and I don't want to speak for France or anybody else because, you know, I live here, um, but it's important to note that you can choose Catholic schools. Uh, some of that idea is that that is an institution that should be able to operate. And, but you do have that option, you do have that choice. So it's not just the Netherlands, it's many countries who have much more choice uh, than we do in how you, you know, where your kids go to school. And I think that's neutrality. Importantly, also many of those countries though say the government will put a lot of controls on what you can teach. You have to have particular standards that you teach. There, uh, you have to, you, you know, cannot have admissions rules. It all varies from place to place. So there is sort of a balance there of choice, but also with the government saying, but it's bounded. There are some things you cannot do or you must do. I think that that goes too far. I think that once government can say, feel free to choose something, but that thing you choose cannot do X, Y, or Z, that's too much limit on liberty. But in this sort of spectrum of what we've discussed, that, a lot of people call that pluralism, that is a model that maybe many people could get behind. The idea that you are entitled to choose a school with the money to educate your child that is consistent with your worldview, but that greater society may have some say in the bounds of what that does. Again, I think that's too limiting, but we have to understand that there is actually a wide spectrum of how we deliver education, and it is generally trying to balance these two things, cohesion versus diversity and liberty. Thanks so much, Neil. Um, fascinating, and uh, indeed, I think liberty and pluralism is the way to a lot of different worldviews. You know, and for, I mean, religions and sects, plus also the secular can be a particular conviction as well, right? It can be what, this comprehensive worldview about how things are, how human nature is, and whether that's a fact or an ideology, I mean, these are endless questions, but I think allowing more choice is probably the way. But anyway, thank you so much. I mean, this was a great panel, but we're still <coughs> continuing. Now we have time for questions and answers. 
Now, one thing I will say is that in, in some of the panels, people say, please ask uh, questions, but do not make comments. We don't say that. I mean, <laughs> you're welcome to make comments. Just make it not too long, please, so we have time for everybody. And that is, of course, uh, for here in-person audience, also for our online audience. I already, I already see a few questions coming in. We will get back to that. The online audience may join the conversation from Facebook, YouTube, and on X, formerly known as Twitter, which has become really a long name for a popular application. Uh, and <laughs> you can use the hashtag CatoCEF. Uh, and of course, our in-person audience here can just raise their hands and come to the microphone. Do we have a microphone? We would love to hear your thoughts, your questions. Yes, sir, right there. Um, in as much as uh, the state requires uh, kids to go to school, in effect, aren't they coercing them into a particular form of education, depending upon what the school teaches? I mean, if the parents have enough money, they can send them to a private school or whatever, but the great majority of people don't have 20,000 bucks a year to, to spend to send their kid to a private school. Thank you, sir. Also, would you like to identify yourself, please, first? I forgot to remind yeah, that. Yeah, uh, Joe Benning, I'm a retired economist. So, and who would you like to ask this question to? Well, I'll just say it quickly for the American uh, context. Uh, it, it's sort of, it's not quite as clear as you must send your child to a school, noting that in the United States, each state has a lot of autonomy over what they do, so it is gonna vary from state to state. Um, typically, what the requirement is, is that your child gets an education and much of the impetus to go to school, in particular public school, is you are taxed and that money goes only to make the public school free. But you can actually choose a wide variety of private schools that are very diverse. So you have some sort of uh, schools, some people call them free-range kids' schools, but where, you know, where kids have they vote on how the school is controlled. You have lots of different private options. So you're not quite required to go to typically what we think of as school where everybody sits at a desk and receives instruction from a teacher. And then there's homeschooling. Homeschooling used to be illegal in many places. It's now legal everywhere. And if you homeschool, you have all lots of latitude on how your kids are taught. So there is certainly a powerful thumb on the scale, very heavy thumb to go to a school, and that is a public school, because that is what's made free through taxation, but it's not your only option. Thank you, and there was another question there. Yes, sir. Yeah. Thank you. I'd like to ask the speaker about the situation in Montgomery schools, about the, about the curriculum you described about the third, fourth, and fifth grade. I'd like to ask, is that like a subject that's taught throughout the semester, like? math or history or English, or is it maybe once a week on Wednesday afternoons we discuss this subject, or is it like a unit that lasts for three days or one week? How is this subject taught at, at this level? Well, I mean, all teachers are required to incorporate the curriculum in some form. There is some flexibility in terms of how the, the teacher is going to incorporate it. Um, but they are required to incorporate it. And the argument, as I understand it from the school district, is that it's not really a curriculum on LGBTQ issues, but these are just books that are used to teach students how to read. 
But as I noted, the resource guides that go with it and the school board's guides to the teachers and how to implement these books go well beyond just reading the book. Right, and so this goes also in part to the question that Rob raised around representation. It's not just merely reading a book with particular characters, it's the entire discussion that goes, around, goes along with it. Uh, so well, let me explore your romantic feelings to the fourth graders, right? Um, and so, it's, so in answer, you know, as a response to your question, it's the way the teacher incorporates it is different, but it ultimately the idea is to incorporate it to teach reading um, and language arts. Thank you so much. There was a gentleman right behind her. Yes, uh, in this one. Yeah, right in the middle. Good afternoon. My name is Todd Wiggins. I have a question about uh, sectarian schools, yes, such as Catholic schools, which are very popular in parts of the U.S. Is there any evidence, or do you discuss how what the results are with respect to spiritually oriented? education, what the outcome has been for kids who graduate or, or attend these kinds of schools versus public schools in general. Neil, maybe would you like to comment? Sure. Uh, well, so we know that Catholic schools tend to do pretty well. Um, that is sort of broad data. So if you look at the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which are national exams, uh, but importantly, most people won't take them. They don't have high stakes, so you're not encouraged to game them. So they're kind of a good uh, sense of how the schools are doing, as opposed to a high stakes test where you spend a whole lot of time with test prep. These will give you some idea of how the, much the kids are learning. Uh, and Catholic schools do pretty well on NAEP exams, and they actually did well through COVID. So where we saw public school kids fall, Catholic school kids did pretty well. They didn't have nearly the dips of public school kids. That said, it's always important you've got to sort of, to really drill down to what's happening, it's important to have lots of controls for the, you know, how wealthy are the kids' families and things like that. But the broad evidence we have is that Catholic schools do well on achievement. I think what's especially important for the discussion here is, we have lots of evidence from the United States and from Canada, which is where I've seen the most survey work, that kids who go to private schools, so Catholic schools, Protestant schools, and also homeschoolers, tend to be actually very good citizens. They tend to know more about how like government works, to be more inclined to volunteer in their communities than people who went, kids who went to public schools. Um, and they tend to be, more tolerant of people with different viewpoints to say, this person is going to say something that is really mean about my group, but they have a right to say it. So I think that for our discussion, what is safe to say is we don't have any kind of data that suggests that private school kids, who include Catholic school kids, are less tolerant or are less uh, valuable or productive or you know, safe uh, as citizens. But that, again, is pretty 10,000-foot level. Um, but we don't have any reason to be particularly concerned. If I could just um, follow up on that with one comment that I think is important for us to bear in mind. Whenever we're talking about any comparison between public education and private education, you have to remember that public education is, by law, required to teach all comers. Private schools aren't. They can choose. And that ability to cream off the students they want can obviously lead sometimes to better results. Although, if, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Neil, but 
studies of the existing voucher programs in many parts of the country don't really show much academic difference between public school students and voucher school students. Yeah, well, so that's why I said a 10,000 foot level. So if you look at the Catholic schools, they do well. Um, but again, I said, you know, you've got to, if you really want to drill down to what are particular effects on particular tests, you have to have lots of controls. But for a sort of societal-wide discussion, that's not a concern. And it's also important to note that public schools actually can cream people. They can send them to alternate schools if they don't behave well. Um, and a lot of the outcomes in a public school depends on what community it serves. Uh, and then the other problem is public schools, because they can't have religion, often are sort of thought of as unacceptable or sort of marginally acceptable for a lot of religious people who feel they have to go somewhere else. Uh, Rimsera, in France, a, a big part of private education is offered by Catholic schools. Is that correct? Like, and I've heard that. I mean, some Muslims prefer Catholic schools in France. Is that because there's more religious freedom there? Is that correct? Uh, okay, and, so and maybe I'm wrong about it. It's more complicated. Yes, please help us. Uh, first of all, full disclosure, I'm French, and for me, like, French identity is not limited to laicity, which, by the way, religious neutrality does not even apply on the whole territory. We have exceptions. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's public service and uh, go team public education. But again, everybody has a choice, and that, for me, is very important. Yeah. And uh, indeed, uh, we do have uh, Catholic private schools, and uh, fun fact, the state also participates to its funding which, okay. again, I think is problematic, but that's not the topic here. And indeed, because of the way we deal in, uh, I mean, the way the state deal with religion, indeed, many um, Muslim uh, students of Muslim faith uh, indeed left public schools to go to private ones, especially Catholic ones, which I think is actually really problematic. Let me explain you why. Uh, I firmly believe in public education, which should be for all, because that's where you create a citizen and a safe space, and regardless of your religion and your faith. And that's why I think uh, it's very important to understand that the more... It's so funny, actually, the US and France, it's, you know, so far yet so close, so close yet so far. Uh, they are two like countries. France basically protects... Uh, the state from the abuse of religion, history. The US is the other way around. We protect the people against the abuses of the state in matter of religious freedom, again, history. But in the end, I think the problem is the same. We have a problem with accepting people who are different from us, or, you know, we, we have a hard time accepting the fact that there are people who are different. And I think that public schools should be a place where it should be a safe space for everyone. And uh, when I hear like the debate in America about um, the, the whole thing with Montgomery country and so on, I'm like, it should be a space where the other side who don't share the same thoughts, values, maybe should be able to express themselves, but without censoring the other side either. Uh, because that's what democracy is about. And, I'm thinking, like, you think those kids won't find the information on Reddit or TikTok? They know, they're not dumb. Like, the next generation is, like, into it. And I, I mean, and public schools should be, really be the way where, I mean, 
we discuss even of things that make us uncomfortable because after that you're going in real life. We cannot erase a minority because what's next? We are, I mean, there are people who think that Muslims are evil. Are they going to opt out for history of religions? Jeez, uh, if I could have opted for, from math, I would have, don't get me wrong. But um, what's next? I mean, it's like when I see what's going on in Florida, for example, uh, some groups going after librarians and checking if there are like pictures that offend their feelings, literally going after librarians? I mean, this is bonkers, but on the other side, France as well. Policing what is a religious sign or not. The Abayaban, you certainly have heard about it. The next obsession, anything is religious, so we need to target it, we need to prohibit it. And of course, people are leaving this space. They're going to find other spaces where they can be safe, and I think it's dangerous. Because again, public schools is where you are trained to be a citizen, so you need to be exposed to really all current of thoughts, regardless of what you believe or not. Muslims, Hindus, atheists, the Church of the Spaghetti Monster. This is real life, and I think the more you try to control, the more you try to impose certain views, actually the more separation you have and the more divisive society will be. Again, in the end, people just want to live in peace with each other. Great, thanks. And if you want to wear a baya and you can do it in public school, you can go to a Catholic school and wear it there. Is that correct? In France? In theory, but actually Catholic school have also a right to burn certain signs if they want to, because they are private, so okay. nothing prevents them. But my point but again is But they're not yeah. banning those symbols in um, Not as far as I know. Yeah. So uh, now school I'm choice is helping freedom there in that context. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. A lot of good. Kids are not dumb. I agree with that. <laughs> the father of kids, and you know, they're getting Although I think my response would be that three-year-olds are not yet on TikTok, or at least I hope they're yeah. not. Yeah, they shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. They shouldn't yeah. be on TikTok. We should use authority there, maybe. <laughs> Um, okay, so do we have more questions here, the audience? We have online questions. So there's one question I think, Rob, I think this goes for you. One of our uh, viewers now say, will we allow Christian literature in public schools? Uh, I'm pretty secular, but I have not seen it ever. Not in CS, not CS Lewis, not the Bible, nothing. And I served in school board in my town. So. Is there Christian literature in public schools? Well, you know, I think it depends on, and I should preface this by stating I'm not a lawyer. We have lawyers on our staff who know the law a lot better than I do. But essentially, um, the, the challenges that we've sometimes had in public schools are groups coming in like the Gideons and, and other organizations that want to pass out their specific religious literature in schools. And that's, that's not really appropriate. Now, as far as use of religious literature in schools that might include some Christian themes or, or Bible allusions, I, I have absolutely no problem with that. And I think books like that probably are used uh, depending on you know what the curriculum allows, but it certainly wouldn't be a, a church state problem, I think, to have that type of material used if its main purpose is not to proselytize or indoctrinate. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, another question, uh, would the teaching of subjects related to sex, gender, LGBTQ, etc., be less of an issue if there were some consensus about the age of students suitable for such exposure? Now, Asma, would you like to maybe say a few words on that? Yeah, um, I mean, there's a couple of comments on that um, in response to that, but also a couple of things that Rob had said. Uh, on the question of like administrative like feasibility, I mean, I, 
no, nobody here, there's a question to be said about like all the different things that could potentially offend religious beliefs, but there is a long-standing, as I emphasized also in my remarks, there's a long-standing understanding that when it comes to questions of sexuality, um, that there is something different about that, right? And so well, you can try to talk about this curriculum as an English curriculum, as a reading resource, but as all the evidence suggests, it's much more than that, right? So and even the feasibility question is like, well, it's, it's working fine, and we still have the opt-out when it comes to the human sexuality section of instruction. There are no major sort of administrative hurdles to overcome. Uh, why can't we also just extend it to this? And the question of age is also, again, this lawsuit and the concern and the protest are all about elementary age students. Uh, students get this in middle school, they get it in high school, and nobody is raising any concerns about those because there's just a difference. There's like a, the early formation, there's also just intellectually, like how a student's gonna grapple with this information and what they're gonna do with it. Um, I mean, I would argue that they're just not capable yet to, to even understand what is being told to them and could misconstrue it in many ways as well. Um, so there, absolutely, the concern is about age appropriateness um, and is limited to the elementary yeah. curriculum. And Asma, uh, I'll come to you in a second. I also remember a quote from you, was it in the LA Times or Washington Post? I mean, because you said, it was taken from you a few months ago, you said, I've defended like gay marriage and I'll defend all the LGBTQ rights in, in legislation and society, but I don't necessarily want to teach my five-year-old kid about some explicitly sexual issues. So is it the also approach of some families, for example, in Montgomery County, uh, in, in the Christian or Muslim families, like they are sometimes being defined as, oh, they are against individuals who have, whose sexual orientation uh, is, can be defined as LGBTQ. Is it they are against those individuals or values or they're just saying, well, maybe it's not the right time my child learns about this at kindergarten, right? Is, is that the problem? Yeah, I mean, there's no way of knowing how, what every single person believes, but I think what we can rely on is one, what's being stated in the lawsuit, what the specific sort of issue of concern is, and then also in all the testimonies. I mean, every month when there was a Board of Education meeting, there was testimony by many parents, including primarily Muslim parents and also um, Ethiopian Orthodox. And time and again, if you just look at the language, even in the lawsuit, it's very clear, we are not against tolerance, we're not against this curriculum, we simply seek an opt-out. And, and in the testimony, time and again, we are not here, we have fully recognized that, there, that LGBTQ individuals and families exist, and nothing we're saying is meant to in any way sort of um, dismiss concerns about the need to protect these, these families. But we're simply saying, can you also protect us? Can you give us a space where we can dissent, either by opting out, or at least be able to express dissent? There are stories of students expressing religious, their religious views on these issues and then being bullied. And of course, the school guidance also specifically points and tells the teachers, tell them they're being hurtful. Tell them they're being you know, negative. And, and so, again, it goes to the question of tolerance. It goes to the question of representation. Representation matters equally for everyone, right? And religious dissenters are there, yes, 20 percent of Gen Zers, which by the way are not elementary age students, um, are saying that they're LGBTQ, but how many more people have questions of, you know, dissent, largely or not, but not singularly rooted in their religion? What about their representation? What about creating a space for that sort of, you know, genuine diversity? Mm -hmm. Neil, please. All right, well, if we can still pull these up. I, like I said, called an audible on my remarks. I had a whole bunch of them prepared. Uh, but, oh, there it is. Good. Uh, so, I, in part, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, just so I can 
uh, do a shameless plug for what's <laughs> called the public schooling battle map, uh, which is a, an online interactive database of basically culture war battles is in public our, schools. Is it our website, Cato website? Yeah, so yeah. it's on Cato. You, uh, you, well, it's probably easiest just to Google public schooling battle map, but it's a Cato product. I didn't show the whole website. I just showed the map. The reason I put it up here, one, again, is shameless plug so that everybody, as soon as we're done, will go and get on this web page and we'll have lots of traffic and people think I'm doing a great job. <laughs> but there are about 3,800 battles on here about all sorts of different values and identity-based conflicts. So some of it is religion, some of it is about how you teach history, but lots of things that go down to people's identity and their beliefs that are intensely personal and are the kinds of battles that we have when we try and have one answer of what should be taught for diverse people. I put this up in part so in answer to this question, we actually have lots of battles, and I'll show you just the religious battles. Ooh, it even fades, that's pretty neat. So these are just our religious battles that are explicitly about religion. Many of the battles, including Montgomery County about books, may have a religious component, but that's not the main issue because a lot of the issue in, in Montgomery County is what book is okay to read, not just the values. But the reason I put these up, again, other than the shameless plug, is to say many of the battles in both cases, people will say, I object to this reading or this class or this policy because my kids are too young to understand it. And there's an inherent problem always of we don't know people's motivations. And so it could very well be a whole lot of people don't want their kids to read books because they just say this subject matter is not something they're prepared for. Um, but it could also be that they don't like what is being taught for religious reasons or they just don't share those values or maybe for political reasons. And it's another reason actually that we should have a system of based in choice where people choose where their kids go to school because we often make decisions on what we assume are people's motives, but it is almost never clear what those motives are. And some people may agree, well, this book is not okay for young kids, but may totally disagree if you really object to the values taught in that book or in that class. And we actually, if you go to something called uh, Island Trees v. Pico about what books you put in libraries, it comes down to courts deciding potentially what are the motives of people who want a, a book removed? And we cannot resolve that by what people say, even though that's a part of endless battles. We need to allow people to make decisions freely on their own, not based on government deciding your motives seem okay and yours don't. And now I got to plug the map too, so those, making those slides wasn't totally worthless. <laughs> I was looking forward to seeing this map, so glad that you showed it. Yes, great, thank you. Uh, Here's a question here. Uh, the gentleman in the front row here, second row. Hi, thank you. My name is Trevor. I work on the program for Pluralism and Civil Exchange with the Mercatus Center. And my question is for Neil. You touched um, quickly on the, um, the efforts that the, the Netherlands are doing with, with school choice and the emphasis on freedom. Um, and I was kind of reminded as you were talking with the Henry Ford quote of, you know, you can have whatever color car you want as long as it's black. Um, I guess my, my question is genuine curiosity. How is the Netherlands balancing that, um, that tension between uh, choice and accountability? Because obviously, you know, we'd want to make sure that students are being taught um, basic principles or basic, you know, education um, standards. But like, how, how are they balancing those things? 
Yeah, so the Netherlands, and it varies from country to country, and I may not get the total, all the details right on the Netherlands versus elsewhere, but the norm is you have either national curriculum standards or you have a national exam and or you have an inspectorate that will come, and those are government people who will make sure that the school is performing to some norm, and so it varies from place to place what the norms are. Uh, in the Netherlands, I've read different things, whether they call them national standards or not, but they're sort of national benchmarks they have to hit, and they are usually the accountability comes through exams that students have to take. And I believe in the Netherlands they also have inspectors. There are debates about what inspectors should look for. They're certainly usually looking for, well, are the kids learning how to read? Are they learning math? Um, often it is also a school promises to do X, Y, or Z. Are they following through with that? But the norm in most places where they have more school choice is some sort of national curriculum or standards or testing so that you say, look, you go to a school, it can be immersed in all sorts of different worldviews, but that the student is getting the things they need to be a productive adult and often a productive member of a specific society. If I could ask, Neil, would you be comfortable with that system in the United States if we no. moved to full choice? <laughs> Well, so... Government uh, inspectors coming into private no, schools? No, no, I would... Uh, so, uh, I think I said this in my remarks, but maybe I skipped it. I think that accountability should come from parents choosing what they think is best, educators deciding what they think is best, and they voluntarily come together. And the accountability comes from if you aren't providing something that I, as a parent, think is what I want, I go somewhere else. So I don't like the inspectorate model. I don't like the national exam model. In American school choice programs, so there's sort of a rough standard of, well, the money would follow kids to schools that the parents choose. And basically, people agree that there could be a national level exam. So not like a federal exam, but a nationally normed exam, so that parents can see how their kids are performing relative to you know, all other kids, at least in the sample. Um, I would be okay with that. I think information for parents is good. I have a lot of concerns about the inspectorate model. But I think we, it would still be an improvement on what we have now, where you are free to choose a school that shares your values. And then maybe the balance for people who are worried that you aren't then exposed to other ideas is that there is a curriculum that says, but you also must teach you know, that other groups exist and they have the right to exist and to follow their own path without your interference or something like that. Thanks. Um, there's an online question which says, the concern for quote-unquote orally sexualized content exposed to children, is this not nearly, if not explicitly, every story coming from Disney and Hollywood? There's always a romantic interest. There isn't a Disney film that doesn't have romance to it. Do you think you're being biased in your targeting? We're not targeting, but... Well, I would say, if as what I mean, well, that's precisely parents can choose what Disney or Hollywood film they can show their kids. But in school, in public schooling, without opt-out, we are actually speaking about something that they cannot choose, right? Would you agree with that, Asma? Like, I mean, there are some, yeah, I mean, some films have sexual content, and parents can want that or not want that. But in school in Montgomery County, what is being discussed is that they don't have that choice. Right, it's a question about what's happening in the school. It's a question about choice, but it's also not just like a depiction of a particular relationship, but a conversation 
about that relationship in a way that is about the student, like actually kind of probing how the student is responding and how the student is processing um, their own identity and their own attractions in relation to what's being taught. And as far as I know, I don't think, I don't know that the, that of a public school that, te that sort of shows a Disney movie and then kind of, uh, one, shows Disney movies you know, as instructional material, but then also then goes on to have this sort of conversation. I have a comment slash question. Yeah. I don't know. Like just in general, um, not uh, about actually that question. Um, on top of that, we all know that unfortunately there are a lot of issues regarding pedophilia, incest, and so on and so forth. So my question is, how do we teach kids about like sexuality, etc., so they can be aware of their body and just be aware that certain things that adults do to them is wrong. So yeah, what age is appropriate? Because I think that, I mean, again, I get the concerns and, uh, but that's important, isn't, the, I mean, the role of schools as well to make, in different level, in, there are different ways to teach it, to transmit those knowledge. And I understand that over sexual like content should be moderated, obviously. Uh, but at what age shall we tell kids like about their bodies, about sex ed, really, just so they can be aware about their surroundings and just be careful, like when adults touch them in certain ways, do certain things to them that really are criminal. Like, how do we manage that as well? Because if a kid does not, and it has been proven that there are kids who, thanks to sex ed, realize that what certain adults, sometimes within their family circle, were basically raping them, you know? Or like, so, so how, is there a solution basically? How do we manage that? Because again, school is, should be a safe space when we can discuss, and again, age appropriate as well. Like, so, so open question really because- How is that managed you know. in the US, uh, Neil? Well, it's an interesting, I'm gonna key in on one word you, or a question you asked, is there a solution? And we should always, in any public policy debate, I think be careful about saying we have a solution because it's almost impossible to solve very big problems with one thing. So it does, it depends again, state to state. Um, in actually, I think in almost every state, if not all, you can opt out of sex education. Even in Montgomery County, they agree, you can opt out of sex education, and they're saying these books aren't part of that. So right now, we're not doing it with mandatory sex education. Now, you can have teachers just say, or classes where you say, hey, this is inappropriate contact. And actually, that is something that I see in private schools and public schools, in large part because those schools are in, and people who work there are in high jeopardy of being accused of those things, and in some cases of doing it. And that's also why it's important that we don't say solution, because we actually, there have been studies that schools tend to be high, tend to be danger zones. I shouldn't say high danger zones, but because people who are pedophiles will tend to go where kids are. And there have certainly been some high profile cases in public schools where that's happened. So we, I, do, I just wanna caution, we shouldn't make a policy saying, well, this will solve these problems because very few things solve the problems. Um, but I do think schools have a natural incentive actually to warn kids and warn their parents about what is not appropriate for actually for their own protection. 
Thank you so much, Neil. And that brings us to the end of our time. Uh, thank you. Thanks to all the panelists who join us, and then thanks to everybody in our audience. Uh, so please now join us uh, for lunch upstairs at the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Once again, thanks for this great panel, for our panelists.